The great theologian and songwriter Mick Jagger once said that you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you, you, get what you need. Yet I wonder if that's true anymore, because doesn't it seem like at our fingertips we can get anything we want, or at least that we think we want? Isn't it so easy to get what we think we need? You know, I was messing around this week and just looking at some of the ridiculous things that you can buy online. If you guys have done this, this is really interesting. I mean, we know we can buy cars online and get them delivered to your house. You can buy houses online and not ever have to walk in the door. But on Amazon, you can buy just about anything. So I was looking at some of the most obscure, expensive things you can buy on Amazon. And this is pretty funny. Did you know for a mere $181,000, you guys could buy the Heart of Columbian Emerald and Round White Diamond Necklace on Amazon and had that delivered next day to, to your home. Maybe same day if you're in the right city. Yeah, just $181,000. Or maybe you're a baseball fan. Did you know you can buy a Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig autographed baseball and have that delivered to your home next day, and it's only going to run you about $231,000. So nothing too crazy, but, you know, just this house in Tulsa, basically, for baseball. And, and, and this one takes the cake. What's the most expensive thing, the craziest thing you can buy with the click of the button? It's actually a poster of Dracula from 1931 by a, um, an artist by the name of Bella Luigio. And this one will only run you about $1.25 So nothing too crazy if you tried to sell that to me, I'd offer you about $4, but 1.2 is what it goes for. I mean, isn't it crazy that we live in a world where you, at the, at the click of a, of a button, can buy a $1.2 million picture? We just, it's just interesting where we live, and it's no wonder why economists talk about the, the debt issues we have in America. I, I read a study that came out last year that said the average American household has about $9,000 in credit card debt. And so we see it's so easy just to buy on impulse anything that you want to buy. But it's not just stuff. It's everything, isn't it? I mean, reality is you guys could buy a filet mignon and a nice bottle of Cab and have it delivered to your house in about an hour. You guys can watch Top Gun 2 before it's ever been released from the theaters. I mean, it's still in the theater and you can stream it. Everything is at our fingertips. So the question is, is that good? Or is that bad? I think in many ways it's good, right? In many ways there's a lot of really good things that come from it. But also, I think there's a lot of negatives too. You know, you ask, like, what is our problem? Why have we built this culture of fast and convenient? And what's at the root behind it? And I think deep under all these layers is the, the idea that we want instant gratification, right? We want what we want, and we want it now. And we don't like the idea of delayed gratification. We don't want to wait for something good if we can have it now, especially if we can get a, percent, a high percentage of what that good thing is now. And I, I think at, at the root of this, what it is, it's, it's tearing us apart. I mean, if you look at statistics of mental health issues in this country, and there's a lot of factors. We're coming out of a pandemic, so many factors. But I wonder, when we see loneliness and we see depression and anxiety rates, we see substance abuse rates through the roof, could it be that some of that is we live in a me-first instant gratification culture? Could it be that everything is just too easily accessible? And I think the issue is that we live in a world where now, because we can get everything so fast, we just aren't content. And see, I think under the surface, there's a deeper issue. 
Under the, 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 the surface of the darkness of instant gratification is this. There lies the ugly beast of temptation. And we all know what temptation is. We all know that part of the human condition is battling temptation. Temptation is that false promise that you get what you want now and it's going to be good. It's going to be pleasurable. It's going to give you what you want. But I think those of us that have tasted temptation know that it's, it is a false promise and it's a lie. And it leads us to a place where we experience a lot of guilt and shame and brokenness. And so I guess we have to ask, is this just the way it is? Like, do we just have to live in a world where we have to deal with the fact that temptation is real and we're going to give in to it and we just have to try to make the best? Is there actually any hope we can get better at fighting temptation? Is there any hope that we don't have to just accept this brokenness? Well, thankfully, as we see the words of Jesus, there is. We're actually going to see today in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus shows us that not only is there hope for us to be able to beat temptation and to say no to temptation, but there's also the pathway that Jesus shows us to win against temptation. So I'm excited for us to dig into this idea. How do we be people who trust God rather than following our own plans? So if you have your Bibles, let's grab those. We're going to be in the book of Luke today, Luke chapter 4. The last few weeks, we've been in a new series that we're calling A New Hope. And what we're doing is we're, we're, we're walking through the early life and ministry of Jesus. And so we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus was born. And we, we, we see that he is the promised one that the Old Testament pointed forward to. 1,500 years. Last week, we saw that Jesus was baptized. We met John the Baptist. We saw that Jesus was baptized, and then when Jesus came out of the water being baptized, we saw that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then at that moment, we hear God say, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. And it's on the heels of this, this baptism of Jesus. It's on the heels of this, uh, this, this season uh, that, that we see Jesus kind of building into his ministry that we come across this really obscure story in Luke chapter 4. If you've read it before, you know it's about the temptation of Jesus, and it's just kind of hard to understand. Like this temptation of Jesus story is one that's easy for us to just kind of chalk up and move past. And a lot of people have said, well, is it just an allegory? I mean, there's this like exchange with the devil and this is really weird. And so sometimes we know it really well because it's a Sunday school story or we just skip past it. But I, I think we, we do ourselves an injustice if we do that because there's so much that God has for us here in just these few verses about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Now, before we, we do jump in, I, I just want to kind of address something when it, when it comes to this. So we see that Jesus is is baptized and then he goes away and he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So here's a picture kind of just to help you frame what it would look like, like where Jesus was. They, they say that Jesus was, they, they actually have a name for it now. It's called the Mount of Temptation, but it's this wilderness area, this like desert, terrible, dry area that's going to be between um, Galilee and the Dead Sea. And so this is about where we can kind of imagine where Jesus would be in a place like this for 40 days. And, and so he, he finds himself in this place, and, and as he's fasting for 40 days, six weeks nearly, he, he gets tempted. The tempter comes. So let's address that real quick. Sometimes when we talk about spiritual things, especially like spiritual dark, dark things, sometimes we talk about the devil. About half of the room kind of stays engaged, and the other half of the room kind of tunes out. It's kind of like cilantro. Like how many of you like cilantro here? She's about 50%, right? So like 50% of the people like cilantro, 50 don't. 
Pew Research did a study a few years ago. It said 61% of Americans believe in the devil. It's higher than I thought it'd be. So it's, you know, half-ish, right? And so there's a risk we have here that you cilantro haters are going to tune out when we start talking about the devil. And and here's what I want to just to lean into for a second. When we believe that God's word is trustworthy and God tells us that there is this spiritual darkness at play, we take God for his word. And although sometimes it's outside of our thinking, although sometimes it's hard to understand, what we see here in the story of the temptation of Jesus is that there is this struggle between good and bad. We see that Jesus is faced with the enemy, the devil. And, and so there's this spiritual reality at play. And we've met this character before. If you've been with us through our greater story series, early on in Genesis 3, we met the devil, we met Satan, we met the tempter. Who was he with then? Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, there's a similarity I want you to notice here. Not only do we meet him in Genesis 3 in the garden with Adam and Eve, we now see him in the wilderness with Jesus. And so there's a play there that we see Jesus leaning into. And what happened when Adam and Eve met the tempter? They gave in to the temptation. So what's going to happen to Jesus? What's Jesus going to do? Let's find out. Look with me if you would. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's just read a couple verses here. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were, in, when they were ended, he was hungry. So notice that, that he's been, for 40 days, he's been in the wilderness. And it says that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. So let's just ask a question here. Because some of you might be wondering, does that mean that, the, that God tempts us? Because if the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus there so God, Jesus would be tempted? Like, if you ever wonder that, sometimes you'll talk to people and they say, well, I, you know, I feel like God's tempting me with this thing. Like, is it true? Does God tempt us? No, he doesn't. James 1, 17 says that every good gift comes from our, down from our Heavenly Father, the Father of lights. James says that God can't be tempted. So we see that God isn't one who's going to tempt us. So what's going on here then? Why is Jesus being led to be tempted? And how does that play out with our lives? Like, why does God allow temptations in our lives too? Like, if we believe that God is sovereign, which means that God is in control of all things, then why does God even allow temptation? Like, like in your life, when you go through temptation, why doesn't God just squash that? I think sometimes he probably does. But I think a lot of times the reason God allows temptation, especially he allows Satan's temptation for Jesus, is God uses these temptations to refine us and to teach us faithfulness to show us something about God and to show us something about ourselves. And so what we see here is that the, the reason that Jesus goes to be tempted is because Jesus was born to come on a mission to fix what was broken, to fix something that we couldn't do on our own. You and I fail. We fall for temptation. We needed someone to come and meet the standard for us. And so Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus fasted to gain spiritual strength and he was tempted. Okay, so does God tempt us, church, class? No. Next question, could Jesus have sinned? So here we go. We, we, we see Jesus. He's led into the wilderness. Could he have sinned? See, see sometimes we, we look at this and we go, wow, isn't this kind of trivial? Like he's the son of God. He's powerful. Like why? How does this relate to us? I mean, he's God. Like we're not. 
How does this relate to us? But I, I think there's really a, an important deep truth here. We ask, could Jesus have sinned? Well, let's just think through this. We, we see in, in, Gen- or, I'm sorry, in um, Matthew 1 that Jesus is fully God and fully man. So he's got a divine nature and he's got a, a human nature. Well, we know that James 1.13 says that God can't be tempted. So what about his divine nature? Is there something about the divine nature of Jesus where he could have sinned if he had wanted to? I mean, think about this. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. And it says he's tempted all 40 days. Yet we only have three temptations that we're going to talk through. What does that mean? He was probably tempted a lot more than three times. And three times are the, are the ones that are brought to us, right? So hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. But so we, we see this idea that, that Jesus w- was tempted. But I want you to know something. If he's God and he can't be tempted, then how does that give us hope? Notice this. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 15. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus being tempted. He says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, Jesus won. Jesus conquered sin. Jesus was able to have victory over these temptations. So verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. So what the author of Hebrews is saying, every temptation you face, Jesus faced them too. So let's play this out again. If Jesus is the divine son of God, his spiritual nature, could he be tempted? He's God. No. But what about his physical nature? Let me ask you like this. Could Jesus have sinned? As, as divine son of God, no. As fully man, could he have? Let me ask you this. Let's say I ask you, hey, I want you to go to your best friend's house, and I want you to go steal all their favorite things, <laughs> right? How, what are you going to say? Hey, Joe, go to your best buddy's house and steal all of your, his things. What are you going to say? No way. Like, I would never do that unless, you know, he double-crossed me or something. Then I might go, like, mess with him and hide him. But I'm never going to actually go steal their things. But here's the question. Could you physically do it? Well, yeah, I could physically do it. Could Jesus have physically sinned when the devil is going to say to him, hey, turn this bread to stone? Could Jesus physically do it? Yeah, he could have. Did he? No, because he's God. Does that make sense? And so the, the idea here is that Jesus was fully tempted. This isn't some like trivial thing that we can look and say, oh, it's, it's a good story. No, Jesus was tempted in every way, just like us. And he was able to meet the standard that we can't meet because he had the power to know to those temptations. And so here we go. We see Jesus physically hungry in the desert, 40 days, hasn't eaten for six weeks. If it was me, I'd look like Gollum, right, searching for my ring through the, you know, the mud. But here's Jesus, and we're going to see he's going to be tempted by God. So notice this. Let's look at these three temptations. And I want you to notice here, because of the fact that he was fully tempted, he actually gives us the pathway and the power to overcome temptations on our own. So notice this. Look with me. Verse 3. Let's look at these three temptations. It says this in verse 3. The devil comes to Jesus. He's hungry. It's 40 days. He's been in the desert. And it comes to him and he says this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become what? Bread. If you're the son of God. Notice, notice that. He doesn't say sin you're the son of God or he says what does he say if you're the son of God now remember 
Like the day before, you know, 40 days before, we don't know exactly where, this might be 13 days in, we don't have any idea. Jesus just got baptized, and what did God say about Jesus as he came out of the water? He said, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Now we have the devil, we have this, this spiritual enemy saying, Jesus, okay, Jesus, well, I mean, I, I heard that, but if you're the son, then do this. Then turn these stones into bread. Now, again, Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten for six weeks, right? And the devil comes and says, turn this bread to stone. And you might be wondering, well, what's wrong with that? Like, what's the big deal? Why turn? I mean, he's hungry. Like, can't Jesus just turn bread to stones? Like, I don't see what's the issue. But here's the question. See, Jesus' temptation wasn't just to eat. Jesus' temptation was to fulfill his wants apart from God's will. Jesus' temptation was to doubt God's goodness and fulfill his own desires his way. A lot of times when you read about these temptations, many Bible scholars will say, well, this temptation is about materialism, right? Or, it's a, or I'm sorry, it's about like the lust of the eyes. Like, ooh, I'm really hungry. I want that. And I think there is something at play here, but I want you to notice it's deeper than this. See, think of it this way. God has wired each of us with desires, right? Like we're hungry. We need sleep. God has wired us for companionship and, and intimacy and, and, and all these things. Like God has wired us, and these things are good. And God gives us the pathway to experience those things in God's goodness. God shows us the best way to pursue these things. However, in all these things, there's the temptation to go and do it our own way. I want you to think back to the garden, okay? Think back to Genesis chapter 3. If you remember our series, if not, you can go find it on YouTube. What does the enemy say to Adam and Eve? He says, did God really say if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you're going to die? You, get the doubt, you see the doubt? If you're the son of God, did God really say? Surely you're not going to die. What was the temptation of, of the, the tempter in that moment? It was to say, God's holding something back from you. God, God's holding something back. God's saying that, that actually he doesn't want you to be like him. And so the temptation of Adam and Eve was to, to want their eyes to be open so they could be like God. They could, they could know the difference between good and evil. The temptation to Jesus is, Jesus, are you sure God's, God's plan for you is right? Jesus, are you sure this is the right one? Just turn these bread into stone. Why are you suffering in the desert? Why do you really need to do this? If you're the son of God, just do this. See, I think here's the temptation that we all can take away that we see Jesus reveal for us is this, that we are tempted to doubt that God is good and always provides. Like Jesus, he knew his heavenly father was going to provide for him. He knew his heavenly father was good. But how many times are we tempted? How many times do we have this temptation in our life to not trust God's goodness? Right? Like that temptation comes into our life and we're tempted to think that we know what's good for us. Like, right, like we, we desire food, but we're tempted to overeat. Especially when Jiku Barbecue moves like two minutes from your house and there's an In-N-Out burger on the other side, right? You're like, I know what's good for me, God, and it's ribs and brisket every single day. Like, we're tempted to go overeat because we, it's good, man. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fulfill me. It's going to satisfy me. There's gratification. Or we desire sleep. We're tired, yet we're tempted to just sleep in. We're tempted to call into work. We're tempted to kind of be lazy or 
We, we desire physical intimacy with a spouse, yet we're tempted to, to lust and we're tempted to affairs and we're tempted to pornography. There's these things and they're so easy, especially in 2022. And rather than waiting for the good things that God gives us, for God's plan, we doubt God's good plan for us and we go and make our own way. And we decide that we are going to do it ourselves because we can get it now. And I think this led to a huge problem inside of us. Because what has happened is, because of our temptations, because of the things that are calling to us, the little, the little things that beckon to us, and because of the way we give in those temptations, we begin to identify ourselves by those things. And we begin to say, well, my identity now is, is this. I struggle with this. This is my identity. And I think what God's word is saying is, no, your identity is not what you struggle with, and your identity is not what your sin has fallen you in, or you've fallen into. Your identity is in that I have created you and called you to be a son and daughter of God. That's your identity. And so we, we have to, to, to learn to, to fight, to realize that God loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He calls us into something bigger and better. And so what, what does this look like? How do we fight temptation? Well, Jesus shows us in verse 4. Notice this, what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus is hungry. He, you know, he can see his ribs. I haven't seen my ribs in a while, but he can see his ribs. And he's like, turn these stones into bread, the devil says. And notice what Jesus says. He says this. He says, isn't it written? Man cannot live by bread alone. And you might be saying, after six weeks of not eating, I, I don't know about that. Like, I need some bread. But Jesus is, is highlighting a deep truth here. Now, pause for a second. Wouldn't you have expected Jesus to say something else, right? Like, in that moment, like, wait, hold on, Jesus, that's your answer? Like, rather, why can't Jesus, like, cage fight the devil right then, right? Like, why can't Jesus, like, Jean-Claude Van Damme put on the little things Roll him in the glass and just go at him, right? Just put him in his place. Why do we need to wait? Because Jesus is teaching us a serious, impactful, spiritual truth. He quotes a Bible verse. I mean, isn't that interesting? He just quotes a Bible verse. Seems a little anticlimactic. It's kind of like when somebody says, like, hey, hey, I have to cure all your problems. I have the magic bullet. You ready for this? Eat chicken and lettuce and nothing else, right? You're like, like give me, how, about, how about a pill? Can I get a shot, Right? Like, can you give me an app on my phone, right? I, like, it's kind of anticlimactic, right? Although if you do eat chicken and lettuce, you're going to be like the healthiest person you know, right? And seaweed, protein, milkshakes. But outside of that, like, you know, we, we feel like there should be more for us here. But Jesus is showing us the power of God's word. Hebrews 4 says that God's word is a sword. So, so notice this. Jesus actually quotes something from Deuteronomy 8. Every one of these temptations, there's a backstory. That fits what Jesus is talking about. And we, we often miss it because we don't know our Old Testaments. So here's what's happening. Real quick, real quick backstory. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God has rescued Israel from Egypt. God does all this miraculous stuff. And if you were here this summer when Pete taught on manna, you see that Israel's grumbling. They're in the desert and they're going, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us? Like we're hungry. We need food. We're thirsty. And so God hears the grumbling. And what does God do? Well, he gives manna like little frosted flake, little crackers. Sounds pretty good right now, actually. And he brings water from a rock and from other places. And so Moses is, in Deuteronomy 8, reminding them that when they were tested in the wilderness, God provided. And so Moses says to them, so learn to trust God. 
that you don't just live on bread and on water because it's what you guys think you live on. Instead, you live on the promises of God. You live on the words that come out of God's mouth because by God's words, he brings us manna and he brings us water. Does that make sense? And so God, Jesus is calling back to when Moses told Israel, guys, stop doubting in God's plan. Like, stop doubting in God's goodness. Stop doubting that God is going to provide. And so don't miss this. What Jesus says to the devil is, we're not supposed to live by just bread alone. We're supposed to live by God's provisions, by trusting that God is good. When Adam and Eve gave in, their eyes were opened. Remember what happened? They realized they were naked. They went and made little loincloths out of maple leaves, and they were shameful. They doubted God was good, and they realized that he was, and they weren't. And so Jesus says, fight temptation by remembering that God is good. Forefront, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And so this is what Jesus is teaching us through this first temptation. So here's what I want to ask you. Where in your life right now have you been tempted to doubt God's goodness? Like where in your life right now are you trying to make your own way because you think your way is better than God's? Because God hasn't delivered yet. Jesus is saying God is good. Trust him. Notice number two. It says this in, in number two. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, verse 7, then will worship me, it will be yours. It almost sounds like the devil is bragging that God has given him all this power, doesn't it? You read that and you almost go, God, does the devil just have the power over this world? And I think it gets back to this idea, we see this in the book of Job. That, that God is sovereign all, over all things, although the devil thinks that he is. And so it's like the devil's on a leash, right? He just doesn't know it yet. And so we're going to see that leash at play here. And so he says to him, look, I'm going to give you all of this if you just worship me. Now you might be wondering, where does this happen at, right? Like, where is the mountain high enough that you can see all the kingdoms of the world? Like, did they really, like, with a Sherpa's help, climb to Everest, right? They're on, like, he's got, like, an oxygen tank, and he's at the top of Everest, and they're looking over. I don't think he did. I don't think it was that, actually. Was it a vision? Some, some scholars will say it's a vision, that he's just like, Jesus is taken above, and he sees all the things. And, and if it's a vision, then is, it, is Jesus just really hungry, and he's hallucinating? Actually, John Calvin says, even if it is a vision, it shouldn't cause us any issues, because this was real to Jesus. So we, we don't know if it, where he's at, what mountain he's on, if it is a vision. But what we do know is this is a real encounter with Jesus and the devil. And this mysterious encounter will teach us some things. And so you might wonder, why is this one a big deal? Well, because the devil is saying, Jesus, actually, me instead, and this is all yours. And you might think, well, why is that a big deal? Because doesn't Jesus know that part of the plan is for him to die on the cross and rise from the grave, and then he's going to be crowned king? Like, Jesus knows this, right? So why would he do this if he knows it's already coming? And here's why. Because Jesus knew the road ahead was difficult. Jesus knew the road ahead included crown of thorns and, and beating with whips that had pieces of bone at the end of them and shame and suffering and mocking and hanging on a cross for six hours where people are spitting at him. Like Jesus knew the road ahead, arrests and false accusations. And what the devil is saying here is, Jesus, why go through all of that? Why go through all those problems? Just bow the knee to me now and you can have all this. 
Isn't that what temptation does to us? Hey, why are you going through this really hard season at work? Why are you going through this really hard season in your marriage or in that friendship? Just get out of there. Go find something new. Get it now. Why walk the hard road? I mean, some of you guys might be in a season of, of suffering, persecution for your faith, walking through something really hard, and, and you're just tempted. Like, I'm just going to get out of here because I'm going to go make it my own way. But remember what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called to according to his purposes. That suffering you're going through, that persecution you're going through, right now God is using that to work things together for good. Jesus needed to go through that hard road so he could accomplish the plan that God heard or that God had told him. See, at the heart of this temptation, he's saying, Jesus, if you worship me, you can have all these things. He's saying, God's plan isn't the best one for you. Go my way instead. See, see here, here's what's at the heart of this one, and it's the same temptation we deal with, that we are tempted to doubt God's plan for our lives. That God's got a plan for each of you and how he wants to move through your life and use you. But sometimes it takes a while, and sometimes it's hard because the road is narrow. And so we want to give in so often. It doesn't matter what it is either. It could be success. It could be accomplishments. It could be pleasure. It could be possession. But the temptation is to get them now. Where is that temptation for you right now? Like maybe it's the temptation to cut a corner at work to get a promotion. Or maybe it's a, a temptation to, you know, just yeah, go ahead and flirt with the people down the hall. Your wife's never going to find out. Your husband's never going to know. Like where right now are you tempted to follow your own plan because you're just not sure God's plan is right? Notice how Jesus responds to this one too, verse 8. He says this. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Like Jesus refused to even get in the exchange with, with Jesus he, or with the devil. He, he responds with God's word. This time he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema. Somebody say Shema. Shema. It's where, Jesus, where, where God tells the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, he says, guys, you're getting ready to go into a place, live in houses you didn't build, live on farms you didn't, you didn't grow the crops on. You're going to go into a place with a lot of pagan gods, but you need to know that the Lord your God is one. There's only one God, and that's me. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you need to write these things down. You need to put them on your doorway and on your fence post and teach them to your kids when they wake up and when they go to sleep. And then God says, and then you need to worship the Lord your God only. And, and so God tells this to these people 1,500 years before. And Jesus is reminding the evil one. He's reminding Satan that there is only one God and he is the only one worth serving. So again, where are you guys tempted to skip God's plan to insert your own? Notice the third temptation here. Verse 9, notice this. It says this. So after Jesus comes back against the devil with God's word the first two times, it says that the devil takes Jesus up to the top of the temple mount. Now remember, the temple mount was the place where God's presence was, was found. It was the place where God was personally at, the place where the, the Jewish people would go and worship God and give sacrifices. And so Jesus is now at the top of this temple with the devil looking down. And I'm assuming that it's like maybe part of the, you know, the, the evening sacrifice where it's one big festival and there's all these people down here. And notice what the devil says to Jesus. He says, took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command the angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you not strike your foot against a stone. 
This is a weird one too, right? See, each of these, it's kind of hard to, to understand at first. And a lot of scholars will say, well, this is a, a temptation of egoism or self-protection or pride. It's a temptation for that. And I can see that too, but I think there's something deeper here. Here's what the devil's saying. Notice he says, if you're the son of God again. He says, Jesus, if you're the son of God, prove it. If you're the son of God, prove it to us. Jump off the temple mount and the angels will rescue you. And all these people down here will see you're the son of God. Ultimately, what he's saying is, let's see, test it. It'd be like if your dad was a fireman and you're like, hey, let's set a fire in the backyard and just wait for your dad to come put it out, right? Let's see how this goes. We know that would not end well. That would be a terrible idea. So it's a ridiculous, really ridiculous ask, but the devil's saying, show the world who you are. Now remember, Jesus has been quoting scripture to fight off the devil. Notice what the devil does here. He quotes scripture of Jesus. Don't forget that the devil, that the enemy knows God's word too and will twist it up and will use it for the wrong way. He's actually quoting Psalm 91. If you know Psalm 91, here's the first two verses. It says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so the devil's using Psalm 91 to say, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you really trust God, jump off for this. He's going to catch you. You don't have to do all these other things to prove that you're the Son of God. This will show everybody. Side note. The devil will twist God's word every time to you. Did God really say? Is this what God really meant? I mean, you can look back through Christianity, and one of the things that through the history of the church people really point out is how, how evil some things, some Christians were. We talk about the Crusades. They were a disaster. We talk about antebellum slavery. It was a mess. And in each of those, Christians would use Bible verses to justify what they were doing. That is evil temptation. That is the enemy twisting God's word to pull you off path. So notice what Jesus does here. He, he, he's getting tempted here. And here's this, temp, here's this temptation from the devil. The same temptation we face. We are tempted to test God's faithfulness. That's basically what the devil is saying. Prove it. And that's basically what the devil often says to us. Prove it. Make God prove it. Is God really going to do that for you? Are you sure God's really there in this situation? So notice what Jesus says in verse 12. He says this. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the third time Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy again. Here he quotes from the Shema again. And basically what he was pointing back to was when the Israelites were in the desert and they got to a place called Meribah. They got to a place where they were complaining about being thirsty. And they're like, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We were eating all these delicious pizzas and having all this really good barbecue. And now we're out here starving and thirsty. And they tested God. And so we see that God calls Moses to strike a rock. Water comes out. And then in Deuteronomy 6, again, God says, don't test the Lord. Just trust that I'm faithful because I came through every single time. Notice how Jesus responds to the enemy. He responds with a word about how God showed Israel faithness, faithfulness. And he's saying to us, I'm going to be faithful to you too. And notice what happens next. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time came. So how did, the, how did Jesus fight against the temptation of the devil? With God's word. Now it's interesting to consider. And think about this idea of 
of just giving into this temptation, right? And not trusting God's faithfulness. Like, I, I, I don't think this is anything that's unique to us, like, to, to just to Jesus. We deal with this all the time. I mean, we, we, have, this, we have this temptation where we, we end up putting God to the test. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I went through a pretty ugly breakup. And I thought I was gonna, we were going to get married and all that stuff and went through an ugly breakup. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, if God doesn't bring me a wife, I'm going to move to Botswana and be a missionary. <laughs> I've always been a little worried that someday God's going to send me to Botswana, right? Like, don't put God to, a te- to the test. I mean, what was I was doing, right? I was testing God. We, we, we've done that, right? God, if you don't come through for the, here in this job, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go do something else. God, I'm here at this church and I'm trying to serve you, but man, this life is hard. I'm getting ready to walk away until you do something. God, please bring her back to me. I promise I'll go to church every single Sunday. I'll be, anytime the doors of the church are open, I'm going to be there as long as she comes back. We put God to the test. What is Jesus saying? God is always faithful. You don't need to test him. He's going to come through every single time. Where in your life right now do you feel like maybe you're putting God to the test? Where right now in your life are you tempted to say, God, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to do this. Because when we do that, we're putting God to the test. We're saying, God, I don't trust your faithfulness to me. And God's saying, look back and see that I've been faithful this entire time. I'm going to invite the band back on stage here as we close. And Back in 2018, many of you might remember, there was a group of young footballers who were trapped in a cave in Thailand. They were at a birthday party. They went out and started exploring. They went back into this cave and it started to rain. It was monsoon season. It started to rain, and part of the entrance to the cave got flooded. And the more it rained, the higher the, the floodwaters went. And these kids got trapped in the cave. There's 12 boys and their coach. And so they're trapped in this cave for two weeks. For two weeks, there's no contact, and there's a huge group of people that are, are rallying around trying to figure out how to get to them. They're pumping water out. They're sending in divers and probes. There's 10,000 people trying to figure out how to rescue these boys. Here's a map of where they were trapped in the tunnels. To get from the entrance to where the boys were found was about two and a half miles in distance. But to swim it is about 1,450 meters, about a mile. And so what happened was these two really experienced British divers, they swam that 1,450 meters, and they found the boys. And they found that they were hungry and thirsty, and they were just sitting in the darkness for two weeks and scared. And so they devised this plan. We're going to run a rope. We're going to bring face masks and oxygen tanks, and we're going to bring these boys out. As they were bringing oxygen tanks in, one of the divers, Navy SEAL, lost his life. He had that... He, he, oxygen deprivation, he lost his life on the way in. Several days later, they brought all these tanks in. They've got all the equipment. And so they begin to bring the boys out. They bring, they're bringing them out one at a time. They're bringing them out two at a time. And there's a rope that they're holding onto. The boys have a full face mask. and They sedate them so they don't freak out under the water. And these divers are just hand by hand for a mile underwater bringing these boys out. They all made it out. They got to a, a, a place in the middle where it was kind of a camp, and they put them on these stretchers, and they ziplined them out, took them to the hospital, and brought them back. It was a rescue mission. It was very strategic. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love rescue missions. 
And you think about how strategic this one was. I want you to think about the mission that Jesus had. Jesus, he didn't just swim a tunnel for a mile. He left heaven and he came here to earth and he took our place. And for 40 days, he sat in front of the, the devil and was tempted in every way we were tempted. And every time he won, every time we failed, Jesus didn't. It means he rescued us from the clutches of sin and the clutches of death. And then he went to the cross and gave his life for us and rose from the grave. And what Jesus is saying to us is, I've done it for you guys. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to feel the guilt and the shame of where we've fallen down. Because I came and I met the standard for you. And all you need to do now is to trust me. And I'm going to lead you to a place of life. And so forth, as we close, I just want to say this. Whatever you're struggling with right now, whatever temptations you're dealing with, whatever hard seasons you're walking through, God wants you to know that he's good and he is faithful. And his plan is right. And so here's my encouragement to you. Learn to look back so you can live forward. Look back at the rescue mission that Jesus came and gave for us. Look back to the times in your life when God has been faithful to you. Look back. When you start to doubt God's goodness or his faithfulness, look back and see when he has been good and faithful so you can live forward. Also learn to use God's word as a weapon. God's word is, is the weapon. So we need to go to war against temptation with God's word, which means we need to spend time here in this book, which means we need to spend time here in this group and scatter into groups around the city as we're diving together to see God's word for us. But also this, guys, we need to remember to remind ourselves that God is good all the time and forefront all the time. God is good. And guys, I, I, I truly believe this. As we learn to trust that God is good, as we learn to look back so we can live forward, and we learn to, to trust God's word as a weapon, God will give us the power to overcome the temptation in our life. And he'll change us from the inside out. So let's be people like that. Would you pray with me?